Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Is it possible, um, first of all, just to be able to be here in this room, in your body, and be able to sit here together and to notice the light and what it's like to be with other people, and to be able to listen, too, without knowing, to listen without contracting around what we're hearing. Maybe even before we start listening, you have some ideas about what we're going to do. It's like drishti for the ears. Kind of receptive listening, so that as I'm speaking tonight, you can listen with your heart. And not just that part of the mind that's <coughs> acquisitive, not inquisitive, but the part of our mind that is a little bit greedy, that wants to accumulate something for ourselves, another technique, another sentence, another philosophy. We're really living at an interesting time in the world where we really don't need any more philosophy. We don't need a new ideology. Actually, what we need is to be able to cultivate wisdom and compassion, which is not the same thing as knowing about everything. But even just to recognize as we sit here together that the dominant mode in the mind is to listen to what I'm saying and to know it or to fit what I'm saying into your established worldview. And what's interesting about that? <laughs> Just like in the asana practice, we train the eyes so they're not so hungry. This is called pratyahara, which is when over time, as the gaze becomes soft and receptive, the eyes stop picking and choosing. I try to do this practice walking down the street. Just being able to treat everything equally in the field mm -hmm. of vision. And then we notice how these sangskaras, these psychophysical grooves in the mind-body process, 
even as they manifest in the eyes, um, really filter what we're looking at. So as we sit here tonight, is it possible for you to, for us, to um, explore together without um, deciding about everything? Like, don't like. That fits, that doesn't fit. so that we can really practice with this body-mind. So that we can wake up. This is actually one of the great questions of yoga, is that if the term yoga means that everything is already joined, yoga comes from a verb, yuj, which means to join, or to unite, or to yoke. But when it ends up in its form as yoga, it refers to the fact that everything is already united. Everything's already joined. So if everything's already joined, then what are you practicing? This was Dogen's great question too. Is if I already have Buddha nature, then why practice? If you're already enlightened, what is there to practice? Well, I think maybe if I ask the people closest to you, they'll tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why it's good to practice in community, because other people will help point out if your practice is working or not. And that's definitely what happens in the relationship with the teacher is that the teacher can help point out some of the ways where maybe your ego has hijacked your spiritual practice and created a spiritual ego, a yogic ego. Here's a little poem by Rumi called 10,000 Idiots. Listen carefully. It's always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. I'll read it again. <laughs> this time listen. <laughs> it's always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags and skipped town or died. And actually, this is what I'd like to explore tonight, is to let all of your 10,000 idiots into the room so we can have a little bit of a party. <laughs> imagine, imagine if you actually had a party like this, where you opened up your home and you invited everybody in on your block. The drunkard and the drug addict and the neighbor who built the fence you don't like and your some family members who you never see even though they live like a block away. 
And what I want to explore tonight is what it's like to practice in such a way that the term practice becomes so wide that it includes everything. And that practice and everyday life are inseparable and become, in a way, um, silly categories, sloppy categories. Maybe there are places in your life where you don't bring the practice. And because of that, you might have a narrow definition of what practice is. Or that something can actually get in the way of your practice. So what's the way of practice? Well, this is the way. Do you think it's something other than this? When we say the word spirituality, or if maybe you associate this practice also with a kind of religious attitude, as soon as you say the word spirituality, we have an idea that forms in the mind that a spiritual practice is leading somewhere or that there's something supernatural that that what whatever is divine is not in this floor it's behind the floor or it can't be the floor it's what's inside the wood or the goal of the practice is around the corner and you just can't see it yet And the yogis, especially after the early Vedas, started to question this notion that the truth of reality could be handed down through texts and through words and through gods and through priests. And instead they started to wonder if maybe the gods couldn't secure enlightenment or awakening for oneself and that maybe the whole idea of divinity as we tend to create it for ourselves like that God is not here he's in the sky or that he's not in the sky he's in your mind that's thinking he's in the sky or that there is no God or there is a God or so on and so forth. And the yogi said, well, what if nothing is hidden? What if we actually pay attention to what's happening right here in this experience? And quickly notice that it's very hard to sit down and pay attention even to the breath. Which is interesting because the breath is always present, just like the body is always grounded. But it's so hard to pay attention to the body. Some of you who practice asana say, oh, I'm so in touch with the body. And then you move into the limbs that come after asana and you start to see that actually it's very hard to be still. 
because we start to feel things in the body that we can't do anything about. In some traditions, if they see you scratching, they'll come and whack. As we start to enter the body and we realize this is not the body, this is actually mostly my ideas about my body. Most of the time what we call body is just a word, body. But on closer inspection, there's no body. There's sensations arising and passing away. And then we superimpose, oh, that's happening in my body. But actually, if you close your eyes, it's very hard to locate where your body begins and ends. Mostly it's, it's conceptual. And then we see that most of the time we're, what we call the body is really the mind. So, so we're using the body because it's always present to study the nature of reality. Because the body is the largest part of the nature of reality that we can actually make contact with. Dogen says, to study the way, to study, so the way, the word way in Sanskrit is marga, which means a path, which in Chinese is Tao. To study the way, the Tao, the path, the road. To study the path. So a lot of people say this, you know, especially after they do like a yoga teacher training, they'll say, oh my God, there's so many paths of yoga. Where do I start? And Dogen says here, to study the way with the body means to study the way with your own body. Which is like saying, stop, sit still. Look into the nature of the body. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to Mount Kailash or what mountains around here? it's actually a pilgrimage that begins just with the inhale and exhale one of the most confusing teachings in yoga asana is mulabandha because everybody is trying to do mulabandha to squeeze mulabandha Squeeze your yenas. <laughs> I tried that actually for about five years and it ended in great constipation <laughs> and um, not very many friends. <laughs> Freud had a word for that actually. I think. Because at the end of the exhale, Something happens in the pelvic floor where the aponic pattern comes down naturally at the bottom of the exhale and creates a kind of tone in the pelvic diaphragm. And as soon as that starts to happen, the mind shows up and says, oh, that's Mulabandha. And then it's gone. But there's this very interesting space at the bottom of the outbreath 
that we spend a lot of time starting to feel. Because it's hard, there's so much sensation and deep feeling there. But it's so hard for the mind to be present at the end of the exhale. It's an amazing kind of pilgrimage of attention. Especially in a culture that's an attention deficit society. Where we can't sit still for very long and pay attention to anything. Or some people do their sitting practice and they just can't sit for a period of time. 30 minutes, 45 minutes. What's so threatening? It's your mind. Most of us, our problems are not in our body. Your problems are in your relationships. And your relational problems all come down to, for most of us, our inability to really work with our mind. So the yogi recognizes that if you really want to work with the mind, you start to pay attention to the breath and to these pauses at the top of the in-breath and the bottom of the out-breath. And you can see how it's difficult to stay present with sensation in the body and to feel the nature of the body because the mind is always getting in the way. But that's where you start. And some people get um, really frustrated by this distractedness in the mind. And it's the teacher's job to just hand that frustration back to them and say, this is your motivation to practice. Can you work with your mind? Can you listen? Then Dogen says, it's the study of the way using your own lump of flesh. <laughs> He's playing with you here. And you all probably, I hope, know that Patanjali says a very, very similar thing in the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra. He says, when you sit with what's arising, with steadiness and ease, stira and sukha, then the plays of opposites, the dvandvas, the plays of opposites come to an end. And the body and the natural world become indivisible. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. So you know this from asana practice, right? That at first, you're caught a little bit in the superficial geometry of the poses. But when your teacher says, spin your femur bone internally, that's not about your femur bone. That is a meditation instruction. When you listen about where to put your hand and where to put your gaze, hidden in those instructions, are techniques of where to put your mind. And you know that you enter Trikonasana, and at first it's a triangle. 
And then you start to breathe what's occurring. And there's no triangle. There's just what's happening in the body. You hear some instruction. There's breath. There's feeling. There's tightness. There's sensation. And it's amazing if you're a stiff person. Because if you're a stiff person, you don't really have to go very far. And you can feel so much. There's so many vrittis to pay attention to. And then you realize there's not even a body. There's just what is occurring in the spaciousness of awareness. If the mind's not saying it's mine, it's the body, it's trikonasana, the mind and body fall away. And there's just the nature of what's occurring. And that is a mystical experience. But the mind has an idea that that can't be yoga. So it starts looking around for more yoga gossip to better explain the poses. And then you start going to weekend workshops to learn more techniques. And then you become like a technique junkie. And what happens over time is that at some level we just stay in the superficial kosha or the kind of outer sheaths of the poses. And we don't really drop in to what the poses are pointing at. So that's no lump of flesh. To study the way with the body means to study the way with your own body. It's the study of the way using your own lump of flesh. Then he says, the body comes forth from the study of the way. The body comes forth. So he's playing with you here, right? What are you defining as the body? If your body is 80% water, do you think your body is in any way separate from the Athabasca River, from the North Saskatchewan River? From the soil in the city, from the air that you breathe. There's no separation. Your body is the natural world. It's a seamless continuity that the mind divides up and says, body, natural world. That's me, that's you. Our ecology is in a real state of imbalance. And the world is speeding up. The human world is speeding up. And we don't have time for you to think that yoga practice is about getting enlightened in a cave somewhere far away from here. Because the world needs you. We don't even have a lot of caves left. 
and all the great spiritual traditions are being asked right now, what do you have to say about the huge imbalances in our economies, in our societies, in our communities, in our families? And if yoga doesn't have something to say, it's going to be a tradition that's going to fall away like it it once did. Your body is the natural world. How you treat your body is how you treat the natural world. But if you think it's your body, (laughs) then you're going to objectify the natural world. Because as soon as you objectify the natural world, you create a subject and then contract around the subject. And then Dogen says, everything which comes forth from the study of the way is the true human body. Which is another way of saying, is there any place in your life that you're excluding from practice? How are you defining your practice? So what if we take as our basic assumption that everything is already united? Everything is already interdependent. Everything is already in relationship with every other thing. And then we start to see that it it becomes silly to talk about things. Because you can't really find where one thing ends and another thing begins. The mind can say, oh, the sound of an engine, this is a distraction. Before television, this would have been entertaining. (laughs) But now we have iPods. And if you don't want to listen to this, you can just turn it off. I don't own an iPod, but people tell me sometimes it's, it's stressful having an iPod because you have so many thousands of choices that as you're listening to one song you, you're actually a little bit anxious because you're aware that you could be hearing another song <laughs> I have a friend who's a pop musician and he told me recently that in this record that he's been recording <laughs> The record company the record company wants now just one verse before you cut to the chorus. Because the consumer 
can't handle two verses. <laughs> You've got to get to the sugar fast. None of this two-verse chorus. Soon they'll just put the bridge at the beginning. And this is what uh, Canadian Idol is, right? You don't have the experience of someone expressing themselves in the spaciousness of a song. You cut to the sweet, dramatic parts as quickly as possible. And then you judge it. So one of the core teachings of yoga is that what obscures our ability to really be here in the fullness of this experience are the constant elaborations of our imagination. Chitta vritti. Vritti means uh, a revolution and chitta is basically your imagination. And the habit energies in your imagination are always precluding and concluding and deciding that we actually can't always make contact with what's occurring because we know already. Can you try in your night tonight, for example, when you leave here and you go home to your lover or your children or your spouse or your email or someone you might meet on the street, can you relate to them and really listen to them without knowing Like when you live with someone for a long period of time and they start speaking and in your mind you're already finishing off their sentence. <coughs> or you see someone you haven't seen in a long time who you don't get along with and just as you're bumping into them you fill up with memory and then you relate to them as they were and you say things to yourself like, oh, they haven't changed at all. And there's no possibility of a meeting, of intimacy, of yoga, of samadhi. Samadhi means to put together. I like to translate samadhi as integration. The mind wants samadhi to be like some holy utopia somewhere. This is it. The complete integration where the subject and object fall into one another and there is genuine intimacy but that can't come when you know so much can you go home tonight and be with your friend and really listen really listen to them because that person is you
tomorrow we'll check in and we'll see if it works. Before I continue, are there any questions, comments, concerns, enlightenment experience? Yeah. Dogen. Dogen was a great Japanese um, Zen teacher, and um, he he was really motivated by this question. Um, if if we're already enlightened, then what do you practice? What is it we're practicing? And um, I find that Dogen really sheds some light on the Patanjali and post-Patanjali tradition of classical yoga because he captures the spirit of non-duality without lists and rules. And um, I think that there are yogis who like to practice following the rules. And then they get authorized and certified. And this is traditional. Or now I'm in the lineage. And I mean, this is nonsense. Mm -hmm. What we're aiming for is to catch the spirit of this practice. What's the spirit of this practice? Lineage doesn't guarantee that you can touch the spirit of this practice. You mentioned that uh, the ecology is in rough shape and yoga should have something to say about it. Yeah. How do we know it's in rough shape? Like, uh-huh. How do we know it's, this isn't exactly the way it's supposed to be? Yeah. Um, I think you can take a fatalistic perspective, um, but I don't think that that would work with the core teaching of yoga, which is karma, which is that your actions have an effect. And so the action, karma is not something that happens to you. Karma is what you are. You are the effect of your actions. You are the effect of previous actions. And so, what kind of culture do you want to live in? What kind of society do you want to live in? The way I often think of it is just in terms of gardening. If you plant a spinach seed, you're going to get spinach. It's not very often you plant a spinach seed and get a pumpkin. And likewise, if you plant in your own mind and body the seeds of anger and competitiveness and greed and hatred and ill will and intolerance, then that's what you plant in the samskaras, in the grooves of the mind and body, so that next time you perceive certain experiences, certain data, you're going to meet it because that is your habit energy with those seeds you're planting. 
Right? You're always planting the sanskaras. But sanskaras are also cultural. Your mind is culture. You're a little corner of culture. And so if you then plant the seeds of tenderness and compassion and generosity and benevolence and kindness and love, then you plant those mind states in your nervous system and in the nervous system of the body politic. Your practice is a form of social action. Because in your practice, you're really learning how to work with your potential for anger and greed and all of the habit energies that serve to isolate you from the natural world. But if knowing is the problem, then if we say, I know that this situation is bad and we should change it, aren't we back to square one? To and we I have think to I change know, it. I think I know that this, this ecology is bad. Yeah. No, I well, have to change it. How do I know? <laughs> well, not knowing is not the opposite of knowing. Not knowing is a, a mode. Wisdom is the ability for your knowledge to be flexible. <coughs> but most of the time, our knowledge base is very inflexible. Look at the university system. I mean, one of the reasons why I dropped out of academic culture is because it just seemed to be breeding this kind of competitiveness and egoity, or even this idea that I have ideas. <laughs> you know? And it's not, it seems to me, creating a culture of awakening or compassion. It almost is doing the opposite, mm -hmm. because we value experts who have knowledge. Yeah. And it's interesting, when you look in our culture for the people who are wise, they're not the experts. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're usually the most underpaid people like in the healthcare profession. They're people who help women give birth. They're people who help people when they're dying. Mm -hmm. It's actually interesting in healthcare that um, you know midwifery's changed, but years ago midwifery and doula work around birth and death were like the least paid. They're like volunteer. Go to a hospice and it's like most of the people are volunteer. Mm -hmm. They're still not covered in Alberta. Yeah. Really? No. It's interesting. Or even mothers. I mean, how many of you are mothers? Do you ever have that when people say like, what do you do? <laughs> or what else do you do? <laughs> or what, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm just mothering. So uh, what I'm trying to get at here is that I don't want to idealize traditional yoga. I think there's a mistake. I think we need to turn to texts like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which is what we've been, we're going to focus on this weekend a bit, and, um, and really look at how Patanjali was speaking 
to the imbalances in his culture at that time or her culture at that time. And to learn something about that response that then we can take into our culture at this time. Because you might be able to work with your own personal capacity for greed and hatred and delusion, but then go support institutionalized forms of these same habit energies. And so it's important at this time that we see some of these teachings as applying equally both to the individual and to cultures and the institutions that we create in our cultures. And also to understand that non-attachment doesn't mean, as you were suggesting, I think, passivity or like you don't do anything. (laughs) Non-attachment means I'm not clinging to my viewpoint. So now I can take in multiple viewpoints and suddenly I'm engaged. Non-attachment means engagement because what dissociates us is being caught in our theories about how we are and how everyone else is. And all the yoga techniques are trying to interrupt the way that we cling to stories about ourselves. Because the way we cling to stories about ourselves and others is the enemy of compassion, the enemy of intimacy. And the goal of yoga is intimacy. This is not disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Any other questions or comments? Concerns? can feel one coming. Are there any terms I've used that are confusing or need clarification? Ah, there it is. Being compassionate and open, how do you not form judgment? there's a lot of layers to what you're suggesting. I think the key word there is response. Most of the time we're not responding to people. We're really reacting to them. And we're reacting to them with these two patterns that the whole second chapter of the Yoga Sutra is concerned with these two patterns, which is Raga, which is attachment, and Dvesha, aversion. Attachment is the desire to 
keep a pleasurable experience going. And aversion is the desire to get out of what's not pleasurable. And if you watch your mind, we're moving back and forth all day. Ragadvesha, ragadvesha. Like, don't like, like, don't like, good, bad, good. Because <laughs> we want pleasure. And sometimes this attachment aversion movement that we could summarize as chitta vritti um, obscures our ability to really listen to what someone's bringing to us. And so most of the time I'd say we're not really responding to people. We're kind of reacting a little bit, even though that can be very subtle through what you, you said, through judgment and so on. But there is something that's not judgment, which in Sanskrit is called viveka, which means discernment, which is where you're able to spend some time really listening to what somebody is saying so that you can discern what's real and what's not real. Patanjali says what's permanent and what's not permanent, what's self and what's not self, what causes suffering and what does not contribute to suffering. And um, that's a different kind of listening. And then we also start to see that when we do say something, it's always going to be out of our subjective experience. Dogen says, if you're going to study the way, it has to be with your lump of flesh. You can't do it with somebody else's. Wouldn't that be nice if you could get someone else to practice for you? Because <laughs> I don't know what I don't know, right? Yeah. And so you also start to recognize that your perspective is just your perspective. And most of the time we don't actually recognize that. I did some work last year with some diplomats who were working in Gaza um, trying to negotiate an open border between um, Israel and Egypt. And they asked me to facilitate this workshop, this meditation workshop. And basically it was a few days of doing listening practices because they were burnt out. You can imagine that kind of job in Gaza, being a negotiator as a diplomat and trying to keep borders open. And they were burnt out. And so I said, well, what do you want me to do? Like how, you know, what should we work on? And one woman said, just listening, just listening. Being able to listen to another person's viewpoint. That's not our dominant viewpoint. And you know this, like in states of anger, it's so hard to listen. And then when you do start to form an opinion, when you do start to form an opinion, to recognize that that's just your perspective. That's not the truth. In fact, the second yama, satya, which is usually translated as truth, I always translate as honesty. You have to be careful when you claim objectivity.
I have a friend who's a musician who's taking a break from playing music and he said to me recently I, I need a break from playing music because I find that I turn on music and I can't even listen to it I'm just critiquing it he plays jazz and he says you know I turn on the music and, and I can't hear the music that brought me to this practice of playing music because all I'm doing is critiquing how it's recorded and what this instrument's doing and that instrument's doing and I know that musician I don't like their playing on that can't even listen so again I want to tie this back to the fact that that you have to take action and so when you recognize samadhi so the eighth limb of Ashtanga Yoga which is samadhi if I were to rewrite it that would be the first limb that would be the first limb of yoga. And then the, sec- the, the first limb of yoga now, which is yama or restraints or ethics, would actually be the second limb. Okay, So the eighth limb bends back around into the first limb. It's a circle. In other words, when you recognize that we're all interconnected, then the ethics are obvious. Right? In other words, you don't practice the yamas to get samadhi. It's the other way around. Mm. When you realize samadhi, then the ethics are just an expression of samadhi, of intimacy. That when I realize that you and I are interconnected, I don't want to steal from you. And why would I be dishonest? Why would I exaggerate, embellish? I'm, I'm here for you. See? So it's not enough that we neutralize the chitta vrittis. It's that we actually totally transform the chitta vrittis so that our state of perception is in service of the natural world which has no limits. And then we pay attention to what's here. Great Korean poet Koan has a wonderful poem where he says, um, I actually wrote it down. Some say they can recall a thousand years, and some say they have already visited the next thousand years. On a windy day, I'm waiting for the bus. Dogen has a line like this too we've been talking about Dogen tonight because I'm working on a new book about yoga and Buddhism and drawing on Dogen a lot and um, Dogen says do you think when you reach enlightenment that you will say oh enlightenment just like I thought it would be Well, the truth is, is that for most of us, it's hard for us to really 
maintain the kind of awareness that maybe we touch sometimes in a workshop or with a lover or meditative practices or writing or making music or hiking. It's hard to sustain that. We wake up a little bit and then the habit energies of the sanskaras all come back again (laughs) and start to shut us down. And so we read Eckhart Tolle and we say, oh, this is so great, and, you know, Oprah realizes the present moment is ever, you know. And then, like, two minutes later, we're neurotic again, and just, like, <laughs> angry and greedy, and, you know, don't take the last copy of Eckhart Tolle. I was buying that. <laughs> 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 you know? and, and, and the reality is, while these are great, great philosophical teachings, they really need to be put into practice because the momentum, the momentum of our habits are so strong. And the techniques that we're going to be exploring this weekend are about interrupting those habit energies so that we can refine our formal practice So that more and more, the distinction between formal and informal starts to seem unnecessary. It's hard to do it the other way around, though. Some people say, oh, everything's practice. But I think really without skilled formal practice, it's really hard to maintain a sustained informal practice that really is working with the constant creativity of the ego. That aspect in the mind that we call the ego is so creative. And the problem is that sometimes we get into a practice And just when it starts to touch the more difficult material, then the ego comes in and kind of distracts us in the practice a little bit. And then we say, oh, this is not for me, or I'm going to leave out this pose. (laughs) Or the other thing can happen, which is when we start to recognize into it how much renunciation is being asked of us. And I think this really is like after maybe six or seven or eight years, maybe a decade of practice, I think this is something that really starts to surface for people is starting to look at the depth of this practice and really what it's asking you to let go of. And the ego reaction to that is then to go back again to just the superficial parts of practice and then get stuck on things like systems and orthodoxy and lineage and and like totally lose your sense of humor too about the practice. Starting to make the system kind of tight. And when we become fundamentalists, we're really contracting around ourselves, right? The only reason why you need the system to be black and white is so you can secure yourself 
because something is arising for you that's threatening. If there wasn't something threatening, you wouldn't have to be so tight around the system that you're practicing in. The system is just a story. It's just a story. It's a scaffolding. It's a, it's a conceptual scaffolding that is trying to point at a non-conceptual experience. But if you just get caught on the scaffolding, you really, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not serving the teaching. You're serving the form. And you know what? We don't even know what the form should look like because it's too early to tell. Yoga just got here, you know, and it's arriving in a householder. It's it's arriving in a lay community, not a monastic community, and it's arriving in a place where there's no caste system, or maybe that's debatable. <laughs> and it's not arriving in a Brahmanical Hindu worldview. And so it's not going to look like it does in India. That's not what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. I, I've been immersing myself in uh, the work of a wonderful theologian named Don Cuppet. And I was reading a recent book of his. And at the beginning of the book, the he talks about how he's writing a a new uh, foreword to a book he wrote 20 years ago. And in the foreword, he says, my foreword was, or my last book was critiqued by people saying, it's so 80s. When you look back on it, it's so 80s, the individual and its relationship to religion and the church and so on. And his response is, how wonderful how wonderful that my book is so 80s because that means it was of the time. That's a wonderful compliment. And so how can our yoga practice be of this time? And so that comes with an added responsibility because we have to take this form and we have to wrestle with it a little bit and see what works and what doesn't. And that's going to cause friction and debate and is not going to be comfortable. And that's why I hope over this weekend we can start to touch the essence of what it is these teachings are pointing towards. So we can see the technique in relation to what it's pointing towards and not get too tight about um, orthodoxy and systems because that's all an invention after the fact. Any other questions or comments? Joy arising. Please ask questions. You know, I'll say one more thing before we take more questions, which is one of the things that I think, this is my personal opinion, but one of the things that I I think is starting to change in the way that yoga is taught and practiced in the West is that the the student guru hierarchy, I think, is is being challenged in really a healthy way. Mm. And I think sometimes it goes, 
maybe a little bit far where there's lots of students with no teachers. Or you wouldn't even say they're students, actually. <laughs> a lot of people who just don't even want to put the student hat on. But I think in this time, the future of how yoga is going to be shared is not just someone in the front of the room speaking like this, but it's you know going to be open source. Where the teachings are laid out, and more than any other time, we can look now at so many teachings and compare them. And that's we've never been able to do that before. I'm here talking about Dogen and Rumi and Patanjali, and when in history could you ever have done that? You know? And what that means is when there's a certain depth of practice, we need to start to dialogue with different systems because we all have a peace. Mm -hmm. And this will create a more democratic and healthy learning environment, I think. And that's why I really encourage you in this workshop this weekend to ask questions. <coughs> like, I don't want you to leave here with a new philosophy about life. You know, it wouldn't... It, it, we don't need that now. So if there's anything I'm saying that, that needs some clarification, usually the, the simplest questions, the dumbest questions. In the Yoga Vasishta, there's a little line where it says, it's only the fools who ever really understand yoga. <laughs> because they have no idea. <laughs> it's like teaching beginner students, right? How wonderful it is when you teach beginners because they don't ha they're not waiting like to get through every sun salutation. <laughs> How is your reception in a traditional you know what I mean, right? That when you come into a traditional environment and you say these types of things, how is your reception normally? How do you define a traditional environment? Well, orthodoxy and you you know, you come across someone who does have these these types that you're describing. Yeah. happens all the time. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, people leave. And I've been that person. I've been that person. I, I think really before I had a teacher, I practiced, for example... Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, six days a week with no holidays, you know, for six or seven years. Yeah. And uh, because that is like the way. Siri's not changing. And then I started to study with teachers and also meeting Batavi Joyce and realizing, wait a second, this is not the traditional way. Mm -hmm. Tabby Joyce does not speak English. It's very hard to talk with him in English. I have a book coming out in August, and the, the introduction to the book is a story about being with Batabi Joyce in Boulder, Colorado. We got to spend lots of time together for a couple of weeks. And one of the things that was so interesting was how when you would ask him a question about how do you put your knee behind your head? How do you do that? He'd say things like, oh, Allah's coming. 
You know, like all the one-liners you know already. That's not the one-liners. It's like the extent of his language in English, you know. And, um, and then people would form the questions just so they could hear those one-liners. It's like going to a concert and like yelling out your favorite song. <laughs> Does anybody know that wonderful Joni Mitchell record? It's a, it's a live album. And someone in the crowd yells out, like, play blue or whatever. And she says back to them, did anyone ever ask Van Gogh to paint the starry night again? Uh-huh. <laughs> I just like this, you know, what we need here. Anyways, so in, in the book I tell the story about um, how then, once in a while, someone would ask a real question. You know, like, I'm having a hard time. You know, like, I came to this practice because someone's died or I'm depressed or what is kundalini? What is that? You know, and he senses a real question and then he starts chanting because he never answers. If you've ever read an interview with him, he never answers in the first person. He'll quote shastras, he'll quote texts. And so if you don't know Sanskrit, And if you don't know the references that he's referring to, then you can't really get what he's trying to share, what he's trying to impart. And so it's unfortunate, you know, that um, sometimes we get these ideas that this is the orthodox system, this is how it is, it never changed, you know. And even when you ask Batabi Joyce, like, where did this system come from? And they'll say things like, oh, the, it was written on tea leaves in a library in Calcutta. This text called the Yoga Karunta. I asked him, I'm like, you know, you know, I'm an amateur scholar. I really want to look at the Yoga Karunta, do some research. Where is it? Eaten by ants. <laughs> like, nobody's ever seen the Yoga Karunta. It's not written down anywhere. Um, so, again, you know, in a way, I'm not trying to make a critique here. I'm just trying to poke a little bit at where we need the security of a system and where we're turning outside of ourselves to try and ground ourselves somehow in the system we're practicing. And I hope after this weekend there'll be a sense that there is something here to practice and you have to practice. But be careful about clinging to the form. And I apologize if that's not what you want to hear. Because I know sometimes we just want the system laid out. But that doesn't guarantee anything. What was the connection you made with not knowing and wisdom? Wisdom is not knowing. Yeah. Wonderful teacher living these days, Bernie Glassman. He runs this retreat every year called the Bearing Witness Program where they take a group of people on a silent sitting meditation retreat to Auschwitz. 
And they go and they sit on the train tracks and they sit in buildings that were large human furnaces. And someone said to him, like, why, why do you do that? Why do you go there and do this? And he said, you know, I realized one day that I had all of these reasons how the Holocaust could have happened. And suddenly, I realized that really in my heart, I have no idea how something like that can happen. I have no idea how that kind of violence can happen. I don't know how that can happen. It's like the intellectual knowledge falls away and and he's hit with it in his heart. He said, so I had to go there and just sit still and look around and learn. When you drop your knowing, you can learn something. You can learn something. Like for sure tomorrow when we're working on Urdhva Dhanurasana, someone's going to say, well, my teacher said that actually the arm bone, dot, 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 dot. Listening, not knowing. I'm curious about the reaction versus response. Hmm. Um, and we have these pattern reactions that, that we all drop into. Do you have those also? I That's not what you said. And I'm curious about the connection between the physical practice yeah. and finding that space between, it seems like there's a little space before you hit reaction where there is an opportunity for response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, yeah. And because I, I don't have a strong meditation practice at yeah. all, and I do have a semi-regular physical practice, yeah. cultivating some of that through physical yeah. practice, I'm wondering if that will even what we do. Oh, yeah, we're going to spend the whole weekend on this. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll talk about it for a few minutes, and then I'd like to have a little break, mm-hmm. and then I want to do some other things together. So I'll respond to your question. It's a really good question. Um, basically after spending the whole first chapter of the Yoga Sutra talking about uh, dukkha and karma uh, Patanjali right at the beginning of the second chapter says that dukkha does everybody know this word dukkha? let's say it together dukkha 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 means most people translate dukkha as suffering But dukkha really means something like the kind of really deep feeling of being unsatisfied, unsettled in yourself. Like the feeling maybe you felt in your life where um, there's like a deep void or emptiness inside you, it feels like. Like in the center of the self, there's like a vacuum. Has anybody ever felt this before? And the part of that feeling that doesn't really go away, that's dukkha. That's what's meant by dukkha. 
And um, we try and ground ourselves by filling up that feeling of lack. And that, that craving and, and wanting that we're always motive, that, that always characterizes our, our states of mind. And then potentially says, well, there are actually five ways of working. Well, there's five pieces that create dukkha. And so there's five things you have to work with in your practice um, which give rise to dukkha. And these are called the kleshas. Pancha klesha. Can we say this together? Pancha klesha. What's pancha? Yeah, five. Do you know that? What's the fifth asana in Surya Namaskar? Oh, we have a lot to do tomorrow. <laughs> 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 okay. So anyways, pancha klesha. So a klesha is... Um, let's, not, let's not actually define the word for now. So the first uh, factor that gives rise to dukkha is called avidya. Avidya. Vidya means to see. And where we get the word video. And a means not. So avidya means not really seeing things as they are. So the first thing that gives rise to suffering is not really being with what is. Okay? Why can't you be with what is? So let me give you an example. We're in Virabhadrasana. Is any no Navasana. Has any ever be, anybody ever been in this pose? <laughs> or were you not there for it? <laughs> Navasana. This is usually when people start at home practice is the first pose they leave out. <laughs> so Navasana. Um, you're in Navasana and you start to feel certain sensations in the body that give rise to some feelings and you can't actually be present with what's there, and then you start to feel dukkha. Has anybody ever felt this before? A little bit of suffering. (laughs) And then the mind, well, we won't get to that part. So when you're not with things as they are, vidya, it's caused by two things, raga and dvesha, attachment or aversion, the desire to stay in pleasurable experience the addiction to pleasure and not wanting to be in what's not pleasurable. The problem is those are ideas. And so actually most of us are not in the body. We're in this very tight spectrum of what we like and don't like. You see? And we say that's, that's the body. Well, certain yoga postures and sequences are designed to really screw that up, to really throw a wrench in the mechanism of attachment and aversion. And then, if there's attachment or aversion, we get the fourth klesha, which is called asmita, which is the story of I, me, and mine. So you're in a yoga pose, strong sensation starts occurring and instead of staying with those feelings as they uh, to see how they're actually impermanent and empty of self 
instead of staying with those feelings, we start, we, we lean away from them. And we do this by starting to create, A, the story that this is happening to me, in my body, in my posture, and secondly, a whole theory and storytelling about ourselves. What am I going to have for dinner? I want, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this practice. Maybe, you know, this is really for 16-year-old boys in India, in the Mysore Palace. Maybe I should really go to that other studio there. Or, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the restorative class is better for me. And then you go to the restorative <laughs> class, and it's like exactly the same thing, right? Whenever there's aversion, there's stories that start coming out of that aversion. And then the fifth klesha is abhinivesha. Abhinivesha is the fear of letting go of the storyteller. The fear of letting go of the stories about me. And if you look at that further, every story you have about anybody or anything is designed to create a story about me. So the task of the yogi is to really watch how attachment and aversion are appearing and to get into that little gap between feeling and attachment and aversion. And that little gap there can be very uncomfortable. And that's where we bring the awareness, right into that gap, over and over and over again. And this is what we're doing all weekend long. And when that happens, when you bring awareness into that gap, suddenly the gruntis, the holding patterns in the nadis, start to evaporate. And then the serpent that's sleeping in the pelvic floor senses that the central axis is free of greed, hatred, and delusion, and other stories about me, and then you begin to wake up. But for most of us, our nadis are all clogged up in stories about ourselves. And that's why Patabi says, this is not a body practice. <laughs> I once asked him, why do you say this is not a body practice? He says, because we don't put the body first. So I said, well, what do you put first? What do you put first? It's not a body practice. What do you put first? And then he explained the five places. Is this clear? Or, or you felt it's not clear. Which part wasn't clear? Is it is it the terms I'm using, or is it just the notion that's not clear? The notion. So um, maybe if I use an, an example, would that would that help? Um, so some some sadness arises for you in your body. You start to feel a little bit of sadness. And that, that's what's happening for you in this moment. That's what's occurring. There's sadness arising. But, you know, 
maybe the kind of sadness that you're feeling is not um, it's not an emotion it's not a sensation that you like to feel and so instead you want pleasure so you try and get out of the feeling and instead you go and turn on the television and try and numb out so you don't have to feel the feeling so that's what we'd call dvesha so avidya means <coughs> not being able to be with the feeling as it is why because there's aversion to the feeling and the aversion then gives rise to all kinds of stories about it and then you go to your therapist and you talk all about all the stories and stories about your life and what caused the sadness and your mother and and then that's not enough so you go to a psychic and you learn about your past life and what caused your mother's sadness and how you and then that doesn't work so you go to a neuroscientist and they tell you all about the genetic code and y- your your chemicals are imbalanced because of this you've inherited the blah 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 but anyways 10 years and a lot of money later you have all these great stories about your sadness but just because you understand it doesn't mean you actually still know how to be with it and the yoga teachings are saying forget about all of this storytelling that's all just memory and association how do you actually enter into these feelings they're impermanent anyways you're making them permanent by telling all these stories about them and the only way is abhinivesha really facing the fear of dropping in to some of these sensations and then you actually see that they're just feelings this something patanjali says it's like it's such a great victory in your practice when you can actually feel a feeling as just a feeling <laughs> as opposed to the whole drama of my life it's just a feeling it's just a feeling and it's changing so is that where you're saying that the dukkha is arising from by not feeling those feelings? I mean, yeah. It just creates that dissatisfaction? The feeling is not the dukkha. Even if that feeling is so painful, that's still not dukkha. Dukkha is what you do with that pain. You create your own dukkha. Create your own suffering. And the same is true with joy. That we start to feel some happiness, and then the mind comes in and wants it to continue. And then we say to ourselves, Oh, I'm so happy. And then it kind of falls apart. Because we want the pleasure to keep going. And so we identify with it to kind of make it continue, but it's false. Because you're in the way.
Did, did, did I answer your question? Oh, adult issues. Have you worked with anyone younger who could see through all this stuff that we carried with us? You mean, is there only this kind of suffering in adults? Basically, yeah. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think you see it in kids, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's less of it before they go to school. Mm-hmm. I think it's just visible in kids. Visible. Yeah, yeah we, we like to idealize kids, you know, as always being present and stuff, but <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of clinging, <laughs> a lot of wanting, too. <laughs> What's a physical practice? What did Patabi Joyce say? Is it a physical practice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in a way, I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, some people say 99% practice, 1% theory, but actually, People don't even get the theory, even the 1% theory. I mean, one of the great things about a weekend like this is alternating back and forth between the practice and the psychology behind it is that the theory really informs how you practice. And so maybe over time you can start to look at different things in the asana practice so that your practice doesn't mature just by getting to the next series, but actually just working with what you know already. There's so much depth you can go into when you start to notice what the mind is doing. Mm. Having said that, in Ashtanga Yoga, four limbs are sitting meditation practice. And I don't think that it's possible to share the insights that Patanjali is speaking of in the Yoga Sutra, for example, without sitting still. That, that's my opinion. I think a lot of us like to think that if you just do the third limb, everything else just shows up. And I'm not convinced. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, it does bring lots of wonderful benefits, but Patanjali is describing a real deep kind of knowing and stillness that unless we just start to sit still and, and, and let the chitta vritti start to settle, it's, uh, it's very hard to start to notice really how the kleshas are operating. But just a little sitting practice gives tremendous depth to the asana practice. I was just going to say this... Maybe you could clarify it. Not everybody, I think, understands the difference between your terminology of Ashtanga yoga practice mm-hmm. as mixed up with what has become known as the Ashtanga practice, yeah. per se. So that might be something... That That's we what we're going to do after the break. We're going to go through the, the eight limbs yeah. and talk about it in relationship to how the word Ashtanga is used. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll tend to that. And, I mean, what could be more exciting? <laughs> so we'll have a little smoke break, and then right afterwards, we'll go through the eight limbs. And, uh, and then maybe we can call it a workshop. Mm-hmm.